0: in luke 23 until we get to the tail end of our lesson and then i want you to be in isaiah 53 so you have an hour to get to isaiah 53 all right why don't you put a little marker there so when i say turn to isaiah 53 everybody can be there in a second okay isaiah 53 and luke 23 and if you'll pause a minute let's ask the lord's blessing on our time together would you bow with me Father God, we thank you for this beauty, this beautiful day that you have given to us, the beauty of your creation as the, as the leaves change and, and everything just glorifies you and points to the, the truth of an intelligent designer, a creator. And, and it's such a wonderful privilege to be able to know who you are because you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word and through the life of your Son and we love getting to know you and we love getting to know him and lifting him up even as he was lifted up on the cross we see his majesty and his glory almost as as nowhere else because when he was weakest he was really strongest we thank you for the truth that salvation is by faith through by grace through faith alone father we thank you that whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord shall be saved That salvation is that simple. It's not by good works. It's by your divine grace. And we ask now that as we focus on what your spirit has to teach us through your word, we would do that indeed. We would put all other thoughts out of our minds, that we would put everything that we think of and our heart attitude into captivity to Christ, that we would really, really uh, pay attention to what your scripture has to say to us this morning because... Even though your servant doesn't know every heart here, you do, and you can speak to each of us, convicting us where we need to be convicted and stretching our faith and just growing us in the knowledge of your Son. If there is one here today who has never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior, we do pray, Father, our hearts join together, that she would come into your kingdom this very morning. Now, we just ask that um, all these prayer requests would be met according to your will and your way, for we do pray in your Son's name. Amen. Today, we're going to be discussing a much happier subject than last time. We're going to be looking at the second recorded event that took place during the Lord's first three hours on the cross. It's brighter and it's happier, um, because the last time we gathered together, we talked about bulls. And lions and dogs who surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross and mocked him and reviled him. This second event deals with faith in the Savior, not hatred of the Savior. So that makes it a much happier event to talk about, doesn't it? Wouldn't you rather talk about faith than hatred? <laughs> I would. Now only Luke tells us, believe it or not, only Luke tells us of the spiritual conversion of the penitent thief who was on the cross next to the Lord. I assume he was on the right of the Lord, although some woman yesterday disagreed with me, she thought he was on the left. The scripture doesn't tell us, but I think he was on the right because the Lord puts the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, (laughs) but I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. But this is a very important lesson. I am glad Luke does tell us about it. If he didn't, we wouldn't know of the salvation of the thief next to the Lord. It's important because it does contain for us the Lord's second saying spoken from the cross, which was, verily I say unto you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that is a very special saying. So I'm glad Luke included it. Also, we're going to see as we get to the tail end of our lesson. That's why I've got you already placed in in Isaiah 53. We're going to see that the salvation of the penitent thief also fulfilled an Old Testament messianic prophecy. Did you know that? Did you know that? Well, if you don't, you're going to know it today before you leave. And then also we have a very we have a lot of um, important corrections of incorrect I should say we have a lot of false doctrines that are straightened out by this event but there's one very critical true doctrine that is taught to us by the salvation of the penitent thief and that is what I said in my prayer that salvation is by grace through faith alone no works lest any man should boast All right, so with that little introduction, we're going to devote this entire lesson this morning to just five verses found in Luke 23. Let's read the passage and then get into our lesson, starting in Luke 23, verse 39. Luke 23, 39. Now, if you remember last time, we were told by Matthew and Mark that both of the thieves next to the Lord on his cross were reviling him and mocking him. Both of them, right? Now, all of a sudden, look at... Luke 23:39, we are told just one of them is reviling him. and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, "If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us." But the other, big change in one of the thieves, but the other answering, rebuked him, saying, "Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we're being condemned justly, he's saying. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, who's he speaking of? Jesus. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today... Shall thou be with me in paradise? Well, as I said, if you remember from our last lesson two weeks ago, uh, the two malefactors had joined in the mockery of Jesus and reviled him with their curses and their taunts which had echoed the words of the chief priest. They were just copycats saying exactly what the chief priest had said, which in effect was, if you are the king of Israel, as that placard over your head says, then come down from where? Your cross. (laughs) You trusted in God, and you claim to even be the son of God, so prove it, prove it, and prove it to us by coming down from the cross. But you can't do that, can you? Because you're a fraud. You're not who you claim to be. God doesn't care about you. If God did care about you, you wouldn't be up there in the first place. If he did care about you, he surely would get you down. But let me ask you a question. When, God, when the Lord Jesus gave Israel that all-consuming sign, you know, he gave her many, many signs, but she kept asking for a sign, and he gave her one sign, what was it? Was, that, was it that he would come down? from the cross, or that he would come up from the grave. Up from the grave, he arose. Of course he couldn't come down from the cross, because if he came down from the cross, he'd never come up from the grave, would he? So that isn't a sign that he was going to give them. Isn't it, when you think about this scene, isn't it just another reflection on the depravity and the hypocrisy of mankind to realize that no one, including the spiritual leaders of Israel, nobody was reviling those two sinful, immoral criminals who were being executed with the Lord that day. They were the ones who deserved to be mocked and scorned, weren't they? They were They were sinners. Um, just as Barabbas should have been the one on that middle cross instead of the Lord Jesus. Yet rather than the people hurling deserved insults at the true criminals, every single group of people, on, near, or passing by, I shouldn't say on, well yeah, on, near, or passing by, was insulting, they were, they were um, shooting their fiery darts at the innocent one, the innocent Lamb of God. I say on because even the malefactors themselves were hurling their insults at, at him. And of all people, wouldn't you think that those two thieves would have remained silent when it came to taunting Jesus? Wouldn't you? I mean, because they were in no position at all, either spiritually or physically, to banter anyone so we could really say that not only was Jesus numbered with the transgressors, as it said in Isaiah fifty-three twelve, but he was also ridiculed by the transgressors. And think of this, it was an additional reproach on him that he was crucified in the midst of these two transgressors. Why was that an additional reproach on him? Because being crucified in the middle of two thieves suggested that he was the worst of the three. That he was the chief of sinners. You know, there's a lot going on in the fact that just that he was in the middle. Jesus is always in the middle. You know, where two or three are gathered, there is he in the midst of us. Uh, when he appeared after his resurrection... In the upper room, the first time, you know, to the disciples, it says there he was in the midst of them. He's always in the middle of everything. Why do you think God put him on the middle cross? Because he's Lord, right? And also because that signified his kingship. But men put him there to, to suggest that he was the worst sinner, the chief of sinners, didn't they? And really, I got to thinking about that, in a way... In that particular situation he was the chief of sinners because he literally became sin, didn't he? He never sinned, but he he took it for us. He took it for us. So I, I subtitled this lesson. I came up with another title for it. The Thief Meets the Chief <laughs> So originally anyway, originally both thieves were reviling the Lord, hurling the same remarks at him that they had heard coming from all the other people. But all of a sudden in Luke 23, 39, we learn of an amazing change. Now only one of the malefactors is scorning Jesus. Why does the other thief no longer join his companion? He had been. All of a sudden, there's a cessation to his scorning. Why? Do you think he died? No, we know he didn't die because he doesn't die until sometime after 3 p.m. Jesus dies at 3, and then they go and break the legs of the thieves, and they die shortly thereafter. Well, did he pass out, you think? Did he faint? No, we know he didn't faint because we hear from him, but we hear from him in a completely different tone, don't we? So what happened? What happened to cause this dramatic change? Well, obviously, based upon what we do hear next from him, some great, wonderful person has been at work in his heart. And who is that great and wonderful person? God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, you see, had been using certain things to draw this man to the truth of the person who, of Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit's job. He draws men and women and young people and children to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Spirit was doing. And he was using certain things to do that. Like what? Well, like the Lord's character, his person, his manner during this whole situation, this horrible situation being crucified for no cause, no just cause. His whole attitude toward his unjustified suffering. This man had been watching that, and the Spirit was using what he saw. Also, he would hear the Lord's continuous forgiveness prayer for his enemies, as well as the truth being said about the Lord Jesus by those who were intending to mock him. Remember, this was so amazing last time when we looked at everything they said about him to mock him, but actually... They were speaking the truth, weren't they? They were calling him the Christ, they were calling him the son of God, the chosen of God and the king of the Jews, which was also written over his head for the the thief to see. And they said that he had been one who had saved others. Remember that? He saved others, himself he cannot save. That was true. That was very true. And they had said he was one who had trusted in God. Well, the spirit of the living God was using all of these things to draw this thief to the Savior. However, now, before we focus on the the penitent thief, what I want to do is look at the impenitent thief who, as far as we know, remained hardened to the truth and the person of Christ right up to the very end. Isn't it rather amazing When I was doing this lesson, I kept thinking how amazing it would be to think of someone dying uh, such an agonizing death as that of crucifixion. We talked about how horrible it was, all the pain that would rack the body from head to toe. I mean, that's just the physical pain. Then there was the emotional pain and the, the, um, the shame of it, yes, exactly, and the social pain and all of it. And this man is dying. He's not dying of some disease, you know, or, or because he was in a car accident or something. Why is he dying? He's dying because he had lived a life of unrestrained sin. And he had gotten caught. And he was being punished, put to death for his sin. But isn't it utterly amazing that such a man, while in his death throes, was so determined to use his very difficult-to-obtain breath. Remember how difficult it would be for you to breathe on a cross? They had to push against that little sedile, that little stool, in order to, to get air so they could exhale, and it was just so hard to breathe. But here he is using his very difficult-to-obtain breath in order to spew out ridicule on the one dying next to him. Isn't that... which Can you imagine... If you're on your deathbed, and let's say you're in a hospital room, and you're on your deathbed, and you're maybe on oxygen, and you can hardly get a breath in, and yet every breath you get, you're going saying to that person next to you who's also dying, you sorry, no good thing. (laughs) Would you do, I mean, it's just so ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what this guy is doing. That's what both of them actually had been doing until this sudden change in one of them. It just shows us, again, how satanic all of this is. Because that's not really natural to do that. It's just really Satan is behind this whole entire thing. Um, and I thought about what a wasted opportunity this guy had. It reminded me of Judas Iscariot. Probably the man with the most, the greatest wasted opportunity of all was Judas Iscariot because he spent over three years with the Lord Jesus day and night watching him and seeing every miracle and all that sort of thing. But think of this dying, impenitent thief. He was about to face eternity, and there he was next to eternal life himself. What an opportunity he had Instead of using that breath to spurn the Lord, he should have been asking him questions. Are you really who they say you are? You know, and finding out and really observing things. But he didn't do that. Such a wasted opportunity. You see what this tells us is that problems and trials and heartaches and even imminent death do not always work a spiritual change in the heart of a wicked, unrepentant heart, do they? I wish it were so, but it isn't. Many times, probably most times, things like pain and sorrow will actually cause a person to resist and defy God all the more. Being angry, you know, people will get angry and they'll get bitter against God when problems come. Too often, that's the way it is. We've all heard it rightly said that the same hot sun that will melt wax will harden clay. Yes, sometimes trials and heartaches and thoughts of death do. They are used by the Lord uh, as instruments in reaching a human heart and in changing it. Did that happen to you? It happened to me. Trials and testings and fear of death. I was consumed by a fear of death after I watched my grandfather die right in front of me. I couldn't sleep at night. Um, those things were instrumental in getting my attention. Sometimes God does use those things to get attention. But most of the time, it doesn't work that way, sadly. Um, under, yet under idea, the exact set, set of circumstances, which is what we have here in the case of the, the two thieves. And this is, this is something that I thought of for us as mothers and grandmothers and maybe Sunday school teachers. Under the same set of identical circumstances, you can have children raised in the same home, same parents, same church life, same everything, same home life, you know. And one will turn toward the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm talking about growing up in a Christian home. And one will turn away from the Lord. You know, it's been that way from the very beginning, hasn't it? Think of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. So one heart will grow hard and cold. That's what we have in the impenitent thief. And then the other will soften and grow warm. And again, it, it's so picture perfect that Jesus was in the middle Isn't it? Because the cross does divide, doesn't it? The gospel message which centers on the cross divides. It divides the sheep from the goats. It can even divide members of the same family, can't it? Brother against brother or sister against sister. Father against daughter. Mother against son. It divides families, which is the most painful of all isn't it? Well, the two malefactors had exactly the same opportunity to observe the manner in which the Lord Jesus suffered his crucifixion and how he handled the mockery that was aimed at him. Both of them would have been able to hear his continual prayer of intercession for those who were actually murdering him and scorning him. Both men would have been able to have read the placard that was above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. If this had been a scientific experiment, we could rightly say that there were no variations. The conditions were identical. Both of the men were victims, uh, rightfully so. They were being condemned rightly because they were both thieves. Number one, they were both men. One was not a man and one a woman, right? They were both men. They were both thieves. They were both dying for their sins by way of Roman crucifixion. They were dying on the very same day. They were dying at the very same time. And they were in equal proximity to Jesus, You know, it's it's good that he wasn't closer to one, so he could only have a conversation with one and the other was too far away. He was right in the middle, so they equally could have had a conversation with him. Both of the men also had accompanied Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, hadn't they? And so they would have been able to, you know, observe that whole thing with Simon the Cyrene, and they would have heard the Lord as he stopped and spoke to those daughters of Jerusalem. Both men equally heard the crowd's taunts and their jeers, and they saw Jesus' response. What we say, what we can say rightly, is that one thief did not have a greater advantage to understand who Jesus was over the other thief. Right? you all agree? Okay, so why did one turn to Christ and the other one did not? Well, God's sovereignty. The one thief was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But saying that, saying that, listen to this, God's sovereignty does not destroy the human element of free will. It does not. At some point in the midst of his own mockery of Jesus, one of the thieves began to see the light of truth shining forth, not only from the Lord himself, but even from the words that were being flung at him. He suddenly was able to see the difference between the majesty of the one dying next to him and the ugly depravity of everyone else, including himself, because he had been part of that mocking crowd. He was being drawn to the light of the truth of Jesus Christ by God the Holy Spirit. That's divine sovereignty. God's sovereignty was being drawn by the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the very same time, he was compelled to make a personal choice. He could either continue to join the crowd and his own companion by insulting the one on the middle cross or he could do what his heart was telling him to do. What choice did he make? He made the right choice, didn't he? Which is why I say he's on the right. (laughs) He made the right choice. He listened to his heart. On the other hand, on the other hand, the impenitent thief, even though he was in the valley of the shadow of death... Did not humble himself. He did not humble himself. Rather, his proud spirit continued to mockingly challenge Jesus. What did he say? If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. How impudent to rail at Christ while challenging him to give him a helping hand. Would you do that? If you wanted. <laughs> him to save you would you mock him and rail at him and we know that he did because Luke tells us he was railing at him people like this abound everywhere have you noticed they they blaspheme God and Jesus Christ his son and yet they expect to be saved from their calamities don't they I mean like let's get God out of the schools Let's take prayer out of the schools. Um, let's, you know, church separation of church and state to the ultimate ridiculous degree that our Constitution writers did not intend. Uh, let's take God out of In God We Trust as the motto of our nation. Let's take it off our money. You know, just get rid of God. Uh, this nation is becoming more and more atheistic. Did you know that? That's really sickening. Oh, but let's take God out. And then, oh, my goodness, we have a calamity like 9-11. And God, where were you? I mean, it's just absolute... But that's what men do. And when they're not saved from their troubles, you know what else they do? They conclude that God does not exist. That's why there's so many atheists. Oh, there must not be a God. And they, they reject Christ as Savior. Experience shows us that people who suffer are more prone to profane God than they are to praise God. That's why it's such a testimony that we as Christians have to the world when we suffer and we still praise God because that's not natural. An unnatural man will profane God when he is suffering. And if you don't believe me, just check out Revelation 16:9. <laughs> or listen to somebody when they accidentally smash their thumb with a hammer. Hear what they have to say. Uh-oh. <laughs> The impenitent thief wanted Jesus to, to save himself. Did he really care about Jesus? No. He only wanted Jesus to save himself because he wanted Jesus to save him. And he threw in his companion just, you know, he was so compassionate he said, save us. But, but he really didn't think Jesus could. He was mocking him. If you're the Christ, you know, save yourself and save us. Prove it. But was he referring to spiritual salvation here? No, he wasn't talking about spiritual salvation at all. He was talking about physical salvation. Getting down from the crosses and then somehow, uh, escaping from the Roman soldiers. Here he is dying and yet he has no thought whatsoever about his desperate need for spiritual salvation. Which did he need more? Physical salvation or spiritual salvation? Spiritual salvation. But he's only thinking about... I mean, you find people like this all the time. They're on their deathbed, and all they really want is to be to be healed, don't they? They want to get well, and so many of them are not thinking about their eternal fate. There's no component of faith in this man's comment. And we know this because Luke does tell us that he was still railing the Lord. And he used that word, if. If you're the Christ. There's no element of faith. If there had been a smidgen of faith even in his heart, he would not have railed Jesus. He would have sought his mercy. He would have been humble. And he would have said something like, "Um, if you really are the Christ, as these people are saying, and I do hear you praying over and over again for forgiveness, even for your enemies, would you please, if you are who you say you are, I'm a terrible sinner. I've been a sinner all my life. Would you pray for me? Would you, would you ask your father to forgive me? Do you think that kind of attitude would have gotten results? It would have. We know it would have because that's what we hear from the other thief, and it did get results. It got wonderful results. Well, as I um, mentioned, the other malefactor now suddenly, suddenly displayed a tremendous shift in attitude, and it was not only a dramatic shift from that other thief, his fellow thief in crime, companion in crime, but it was a dramatic shift from his former self. He's All of a sudden, he's different without warning. There is a striking alteration in his words, and they're not aimed this time at Jesus. Who does he aim his words at now? The other thief, and he's rebuking him. And in rebuking that other thief, he is actually also rebuking himself, because he had just been exactly like that other guy. He said, Dust look at verses forty and forty one, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? You know, we're all we're being crucified with him. And then he says, And we indeed justly we're being justly crucified and condemned for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We deserve this. But then what does he say? But this man hath done nothing amiss. Here he's not only confessing his own guilt, but he is admitting God's justice in condemning him. He's really passing judgment on himself. And notice this, he doesn't make any excuses for his sin, does he? For his behavior as a thief all of his life, or his adult life, or how many years he'd been a thief, I don't know. And he was a bad thief. He was the kind of thief that didn't just rob somebody, but like the the thief uh, with that guy on the road to Jericho, left him for dead. They would harm their victims. He maybe had even murdered somebody. But he didn't blame his sin on having come from a dysfunctional family, did he? He didn't blame his sin on being Jewish and not Roman. How do we know the thief was Jewish? Because the Roman citizens were never crucified. So he was Jewish. Both thieves were Jewish. He didn't blame his sin on the lack of having a proper education. He didn't blame his sin on having been born into a lower income family. So I had to become a thief. No excuses for his sin. At all, he just confesses them. Here was a fellow who had shown no respect for either man's law or God's law. He had exploited others for his own gain. And suddenly, what is he talking about? The fear of God? Dost thou not fear God? Had he previously feared God or God's divine justice? Apparently not. Apparently not, or he wouldn't have been a thief. And what else is he doing? He's suddenly confessing his own guilt. We are justly condemned. And he acknowledges his deserved punishment. We receive the due reward of our deed. Somebody who has genuine repentance, genuine repentance, will always acknowledge the justice of God in the punishment of their sinfulness. They'll admit, I do deserve God's justice for my sin. I know I deserve hell. Do you? That's what I deserve. That's a genuine penitent person. Penitence comes from the word word repentance. He genuinely had repentance and he's proving it. And then what does he do? All that and then he confesses Christ's righteousness. But this man hath done nothing amiss. This man is innocent. How did he know this? How did this guy get so bright? This is a miraculous turnaround, isn't it? You know, I got to thinking about how everybody was challenging Jesus to give them a sign, you know, that he was the Christ. He was who he claimed to be by coming down from the cross. And the chief priests had thought that they were ridiculing him when they said he saved others himself he cannot save and here what is he doing right before their eyes they're all witnesses of this he is performing absolutely the greatest miracle of all I should have had this listed as a miracle in your books because this is the greatest miracle of all when God changes a heart of stone into a heart of flesh And makes a brand new creation. That's exactly what he did. You know the greatest miracle of all is when he saves a a sinner? When we're born again? That is a tremendous miracle. He is indeed doing just what they said. He is saving another, isn't he? He is saving another. He is enabling another one to come down from the cross. He's enabling that thief to come down from the cross of condemnation and to enter into the paradise of eternal forgiveness. It was one of the greatest sign miracles Christ ever performed. And when was it performed? When he was hanging seemingly powerless and helpless on the cross. It's just fantastic. And what was God doing? Well, God was also providing all of us with yet another confession of his son's righteousness, his son's innocence, to add to all the others that we've had so far. Who have we had so far? Well, we had Judas Iscariot. Remember his confession at the last minute? He said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And then we had the unintentional confession of the chief priests when they referred to those 30 pieces of silver that they had paid to Judas as blood money. Remember, blood money is a reference to money illegitimately paid in order to convict an innocent person of a crime that would lead to his death. We had also six Declarations of Christ's innocence from the very man who sentenced him to death, Pontius Pilate, over and over again, six times. I find no fault in this man at all. Then we had the indirect uh, confession of Herod Antipas. And we had the confession of Claudia Procula. Who was she? Mrs. Pilate, right? (laughs) And now, added to all those confessions of the Lord's innocence, we have the confession of this thief who said to his fellow thief, this man hath done nothing amiss. How did he know that? Well, it was the work of God the Holy Spirit in his heart telling him the truth about Jesus, that he was innocent, that he was righteous, that he was spotless. His words about the Lord's innocence were not only a rebuke to the other thief and to his former self, but think of this. It was also a condemnation of the entire nation of Israel because she was responsible for having crucified an innocent man. He said, he hath done nothing amiss. That's a condemnation of Israel, isn't it? That she was putting an innocent man to death. It was also a condemnation of Rome. Because her official representatives had consented to the unlawful, unjust execution of an innocent man. So, with just a few words, this thief suddenly stuck out as very different, didn't he? And distinct from both his companion and from the crowd. You know, the Christ of the cross had suddenly divided him, separated him from the rest of the Christ-rejecting crowd. And isn't that exactly what happens to a believer who is willing to speak out for Christ? I know once Frank and I got saved, well, I got saved a while before him, but um, really wasn't discipled in living for the Lord. But when he got saved and I saw the change in that man, Woo-hoo! you talk about a turnaround. <laughs> um, I totally surrendered to the Lord and we started to grow together. But boy, all of a sudden our other friends, it was like the... the the dividing of the red sea (laughs) you watch i mean you go out there and you say jesus christ and everybody going you know they want to get away from you as fast as they can because the cross divides doesn't it it sets us apart from the rest of the world this thief was suddenly set apart from the whole rest of that crowd there in his own peer you know what the word church means in greek Ekklesia? it means called out ones Set-apart ones, and that's exactly what we are. Well, with his next words, the thief set himself even further apart from the others. Now he turns and he directs his words not to his fellow thief, but to the Savior. And he says, what? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Did you know that that is the only prayer in all of human history that was prayed by a dying sinner to a dying Savior. Think about it. It is the only prayer prayed by a dying sinner to a dying Savior. And it honored the Lord to be prayed to at this time when he was being reproached and reviled and taunted. Don't you know that this prayer, what it meant to him? For somebody to lift up their heart and pray to him and call him Lord? you realize all that the thief was acknowledging and confessing in that one simple request? It's not, it doesn't take very long, you know, to get saved. Remember the penitent publican in the temple? What did he say? Lord, have mercy on me. Um, um, uh, how did it go? Be merciful to me, a sinner. And here all he says, Lord, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That's all it took. He got saved. Because what is he doing? Well, he had just confessed his sin. He truly was repentant. That is all part of salvation. We must be repentant of our sin. We must acknowledge we're a sinner. But what is he acknowledging and confessing in this one short prayer request? Well, he's confessing Jesus' lordship, isn't he? He calls him Lord, and he acknowledges his kingship. We'll talk about that in a minute. And his ability to save. So he's also confessing him as Savior. Lord, King, and Savior. And this is interesting too. He is also confessing his belief in the Lord's resurrection. Why do I say that? Well, the thief knew that Jesus would soon be dead. They would both soon be dead. So how would he come into his kingdom without raising from the dead? This thief's theology is just absolutely, really amazing. Yet He didn't go to seminary. He didn't have time up there on the cross to go to seminary. And yet, you know, it's really amazing when you consider the circumstances, too. Jesus is nailed to a cross. Remember, he hardly even looks human, does he? after the scourging and everything. And he is the primary object of the hatred of the representatives of the Jewish world. And he is the focus for mockery from the representatives of the Roman world. And yet, this thief grasps these truths about him that everybody else was missing. You know, you looked at him. He couldn't have looked very impressive at all. And yet, what does he address him as? How does he address him? Lord, He calls him Lord. That's incredible. That is a miracle, isn't it? You know, when I got saved back in 1972, 22 and a half years old, I was telling the ladies yesterday, one minute I was arguing with the people, the first people in my life. Can you imagine? 22 and a half, I'd never heard the gospel. Went to church all my life, never heard the gospel message. And they're the first people who ever presented me with the gospel message, and I was arguing with them. I was arguing, arguing, but what about this? What about that? Da 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 da. And at three o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, I don't know what verse they used, but one of them said a verse. It was a man and a woman, a a married couple. One of them used a verse and it was like a two-edged sword. It just pierced my heart. One minute I was Christ rejecting, and the next minute, I knew that verse was telling me the truth. How did that happen? It was a miracle. It was a miracle of God's grace. It was the Holy Spirit. It was divine sovereignty. And at that minute, I made a choice to accept Christ. The two work hand in hand. I don't know how it happens, but I know one thing. It's a miracle. I was a changed person, and I have never recovered. (laughs) Well, he also acknowledged his kingship. How do I know that? He doesn't say king. Well, he says, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You can't have a kingdom unless you're a king. So he's acknowledging that he's not only Lord, but he's king. Um, you know, I thought about, I'd mentioned the word if before when the other thief said, if you are the Christ. What does this guy say? Does he say, if you come into your kingdom? Mm-mm. You see the difference between doubt and, and faith? When you come into your kingdom. How did this man have such spiritual insight to not only acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but to acknowledge his kingship? When all outward circumstances seemingly mocked Jesus as any type of a king, much less as heaven's king, you know, he wasn't seeing what was in front of him. He had all of a sudden spiritualized, didn't he? Ultimately, the only answer is that flesh and blood did not reveal those things to him. Flesh and blood revealed a marred, unhuman-looking man on that cross. These things had to be spiritually discerned. They had to be revealed to him by God. This is nothing short of a divine miracle of sovereign grace. The Lord's lowly condition... And his death by hanging on a tree. Remember Deuteronomy 21:23 says, Cursed is any man that hang on a tree. These are tremendous stumbling blocks to the Jews. To this day, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. So imagine how it must have been for someone who had never seen Jesus except in his humiliated condition. I'm sure it's the first time this thief ever met Jesus. He'd probably been in prison for a long time, awaiting his execution. I don't know, maybe he did see him somewhere, but... When he gets saved, he's looking at him in his humiliation. Even those who had placed some element of hope in Jesus as their Messiah now considered him to be a fraud when they saw him battered and crucified. We also need to realize that this thief's change of heart did not take place after he had had witnessed all the supernatural events of that day. This just blessed my heart when I was thinking about this. When he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, the the eerie strange darkness had not yet covered the land for three hours. The temple veil had not yet rent from top to bottom. Jesus hadn't yet died, so there was not that earthquake that accompanied his death. But... So when the thief accepted Christ, there hadn't been any miracles, okay? He just was looking at a crucified man. But the thief was still alive and did see and experience those miracles that accompanied the Lord's death. He did, after he got saved, the sky turned dark for three hours. After he saw Jesus bow his head in such majesty and give up his own spirit, and I don't know if he knew about the temple veil rent- renting, probably not, but he certainly felt the earthquake. Don't you know that all those things confirmed his faith? Isn't that how the Lord works? Yes. I mean, when I accepted the Lord that night, back in 1972, there was no miracles or anything. But after I got saved, into this very day, he just keeps giving me proof after proof after proof every week. I just read about laminin and got so excited it took forever to get it all to you guys. but I mean, just, he does, he does that. He gives us proof after proof. And I really believe that this thief died a very happy man. Don't you? All that confirmed he had done the right thing. He died with that peace. That and know that, knowing that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. The Lord had promised him, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." But there was one who wasn't very happy that day about this circumstance. Now, Satan is happy that Jesus is on a cross. But he's not happy that he just lost a man who had been one of his faithful dupes all of his life. He had been on the brink of being lost forever, and suddenly he's snatched from the jaws of death and hell, and he is made an eternal example of divine grace and mercy, isn't he? To this day, we look at the penitent thief and say, Ah, oh, what an example of divine mercy and grace that you can be an awful sinner your whole life and get saved at the end fact is while there still is life there still is hope until that last breath there's still hope however in warning nobody should use this example of the penitent thief to presume upon god young people especially will often think well i'm just going to enjoy my life while i'm young and i'll save that salvation stuff to when i get old right or when I'm on my deathbed, I'll be like the penitent thief and just at the last minute gets snatched out of hell. That is so presumptuous and so dangerous. That's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation because you don't know what God's plans might be like that farmer, that rich farmer who was all consumed about his bigger and better barns and thought, you know, in retirement he would just eat, drink, and be merry and had no thought for the the for eternity. And what did God say to him suddenly? Thou fool. Thou fool. You're a fool in the eyes of God if you don't plan for eternity. Because none of us know. We're not promised the next heartbeat, are we? It said, it, it has been wisely said regarding this penitent thief. One was saved at death's door so that no one would despair but only one so that no one would delay. Satan was left to roar as a hungry lion who had just lost his prey. The Lord had conquered his age-old enemy. With three examples that we have, this is so interesting. He had conquered Satan with Judas Iscariot's last-minute confession. When I say that, I don't mean that Judas repented and got saved. But at the last minute, he did have remorse and regret. And what did he confess? I have betrayed the innocent blood. That was defeat of Satan. Then he had defeated Satan when he had preserved Peter's faith. Even though Peter had denied him as Lord three times, right? Yet the Lord had prayed, because he said Satan had desired to have him and sift him as wheat, wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. And did Peter's faith fail? No. And now he also displays another trophy of his victory over the devil in the conversion of this condemned common criminal who is an example of what he would be doing over and over and over again throughout the church age and the tribulation age. Actually, he'll be doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, when he looked the weakest, he was defeating his enemy, wasn't he? He'll be doing the same thing over and over because, you know, just like Judas Iscariot, every day, every one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that they had betrayed the innocent blood and that Jesus is Lord. And all of us who have come to faith, genuine faith, like Peter, he has interceded on our behalf, and our faith will not fail, fail. And also, he keeps saving. We're all thieves, you know? We can identify with that thief because we've all robbed God of the glory he deserves. And, and he just keeps saving thieves, doesn't he, over and over again. Well, there's something, very else, very, something else very important that I want to discuss and that is this doctrine of uh, grace. I always forget how to say it. For by grace are you saved through faith and faith alone. You know, not of works lest any man should boast. We have a wonderful example of that, a perfect example of that in this penitent thief's salvation. Did this man, if he had done any good works for the Lord before his salvation, did that count toward his salvation? No, because all of our deeds are as filthy rags. What about after his salvation? Did he do any good works? No, he had no time to do any good works. He died shortly after his salvation. So he really is a wonderful example to us in the fact that it is not by works of righteousness that we're saved. It's just totally by grace, through faith. The only good work this man ever did was his confession of his sin and his prayer of faith. That was it. Therefore, we are left with the doctrinal teaching that his salvation was entirely by sovereign grace through faith. Period. Period. The humility of the thief is also noted in the fact that he only modestly asked Jesus to remember him. Isn't that what he said? remember me. He was a social outcast, wasn't he? He was a social outcast because of his criminal record, and he knew that uh, people who had known him would rather forget him. I am sure he was a terrible embarrassment and humiliation to his family. His family had probably already disowned him. Uh, We know he would have been desynagogued, he wouldn't be allowed into the, you know, social community of, of the Jewish people. And likely and probably his body was disposed of in the mass grave of common criminals without even a tombstone marker. Once he was dead, the public would be glad to get rid of yet another criminal. Wouldn't they? And so, nobody would remember him. Certainly his partners in crime who only cared about themselves, they wouldn't really care to remember him. But he had been hearing Jesus pray for forgiveness for those around him. So there was one hope in this thief's heart, and that was that Jesus, this compassionate, wonderful person next to him, who he really did believe was Lord and a a king, That he would remember him when he came into his kingdom. And then at least he could die knowing that he had not lived, you know, completely in vain. That there would be somebody who would remember him. So did the Lord remember him? Did the Lord remember him? Did he even acknowledge this man's plea for mercy to be remembered? Or did he stay silent as he had been doing with all the other voices that had been lifted up and addressed to him. Everybody else that was saying things to him, did he respond? No. So far, the only one he's talked to is his father. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. So did he remain silent? No. Of course, we know. We know joyfully the answer. With no hesitation whatsoever, he said, Of course I won't remember you, you lousy sinner. You've been a sinner your whole life. You deserve to die and go to hell. (laughs) shocked you, didn't I? (laughs) Is that what he said? Of course not. He answered the man with no hesitation, but think of this, his answer far exceeded what the thief had requested. The thief had requested to be remembered. You know, remember me. What did Jesus promise him? He promised him that he would not just remember him, he'd be with him. That's a lot better than being remembered, to be with him. The man had asked about a a time in the future, remember me when you come into your kingdom, you know, sometime in the future. Jesus talked about the present, didn't he? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The thief had spoken of a kingdom, you know, some kind of a nebulous kingdom. When you come into your kingdom, whatever that means, Jesus had spoken about paradise. Isn't that a lot more warm and wonderful sounding, paradise? In his second of seven sayings spoken from the cross, the answer that came to the ears of this dying man were words, if you think about it, that Jesus speaks to every repentant sinner in his last hours of life his last minute minutes of life he says the same thing to us when we're dying verily every word of this is so important what well, you could do a study on every word when jesus says verily what does that mean pay attention exactly this is important of a truth amen verily i say unto you not somebody else i The Son of God, very God of very gods, I say unto you, today you will be, you will be with me. You will be with me. Where? In paradise. That's true. That's true. If you know him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Did you realize the significance of that one little word, today? That one little word refutes three popular false doctrines. Number one, it refutes the man-made idea of purgatory. Did he say today you'll go to purgatory and you'll be there for a while until you pay for your sins or first somebody else pays for your sins? Mm-mm. Purgatory is not a biblical doctrine. It's not in the scripture. It's a man-made doctrine. Today you'll be with me in paradise not purgatory secondly the word today refutes the false teaching of soul sleep the body does go to sleep but it will be resurrected won't it at the great day of the rapture but the soul does never go That soul does not go to sleep Jehovah's Witnesses I don't know who else believes in soul sleep maybe there's some other groups that do But a soul sleep is not biblical. And the penitent, the words of Christ to the penitent thief are one example to prove that it doesn't. Because he said, today, you, you who you really are, your soul, your soul will be with me in paradise. Again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then it also refutes the idea of baptismal regeneration. Hmm. Guess what? The thief was never baptized. Oh, oh, my, 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 my. Does that mean he didn't get to go to heaven? No, 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 no. You do not have to be baptized in order to be saved. And the thief proves that. He was not baptized. The thief was never baptized, and yet Jesus promised that today he would be with him in paradise. Baptism, just like Old Testament circumcision, is a testimony of our salvation. You know, it's our way of publicly identifying ourselves with Christ. It is not a condition for salvation. I hope you understand that. If you have confusion about that, come and see me later, because some people do. But that's just adding a work onto, onto grace. No, we should, if we have genuinely been saved, we should be baptized. But it's not a condition for our salvation. Well, in closing, um, we want to, now here's where you flip real quick to Isaiah 53, because I'm right at the tail end here. But this, you don't want to miss this. This is a real blessing. I want to take a look at how the penitent thief's salvation was actually another fulfillment of messianic prophecy. A lot of people do not know this, but it is. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, look at it. It says, yet it pleased the Lord, and that's speaking of God, Jehovah God, it pleased the Lord God to bruise him. Who is the him? Well, if you look at the preceding verses, it's all about the man of sorrow. We know it's the Messiah. So it pleased the Lord God to bruise the Messiah. He hath put him to grief. Now look at these words. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Okay, now look at verse eleven. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be what? Satisfied. Have you ever given much thought to what that was is predicting, what those two verses are all about? This is a prediction that at the very time when the Messiah was put to grief and when he was making his soul an offering for sin, he would actually see his seed, his spiritual offspring. He would see the travail of his soul. Now, remember the word travail when we were discussing the, all of the uh, farewell discourse? We looked at that word travail. It's, throughout, it's used throughout the scripture and Revelation and other places. It is a word that speaks of pains like those of childbirth, labor pains, labor pains. So the prophet Isaiah was again predicting something really weird. Those Hebrews must have really wondered, what is this guy all about? Because when they read Isaiah 9, 14, Isaiah had predicted that a virgin would conceive. A virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us? That's strange, isn't it? (laughs) And now here he's at it again. Isaiah is predicting that a man would be in labor. A man would have labor pains. That man, the Messiah, actually the one born of a virgin, would see the travail of his soul. He would actually see his seed, it says. He would bring forth a child. A man would bring forth a child. And when would this take place? It would take place when he was pleasing the Lord God by making his own soul an offering for sin. When did the Messiah do that? On the cross. So who then was the child born to the laboring Messiah as he was in the process of offering up his soul for sin? Who was the child? The penitent thief. He was the only individual recorded to be born into the family of God while Jesus was on the cross and still alive. He had to still be alive in order to see it, to see his seed. We know how wonderful the assurance of his salvation was to the thief. We talked about how he probably died a very happy man. But have we ever thought, have we ever stopped to think what the man's salvation meant to the heart of the Lord himself? It was all part of that joy that was set before him. He Isaiah said that he would see the travail of his soul and be what? Satisfied. You imagine what that birth child meant to the heart of our Lord. You know what it's like for us to go through labor and then finally have that baby in our arms? You're deeply satisfied. And all the labor was worth it. And no one ever went through labor pains like our Lord. You know, we could actually say, and this would be right, we could actually say that Jesus died in childbirth. And he was satisfied. And he knows that that penitent thief was just the first fruit of much fruit. Because many, many more penitent thieves were born into his kingdom. And still are, right? And I'm one of them, and I hope you're one of them. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the truth that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. We do thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much. Even while we were at enmity with you and robbing you of the glory that you deserve, you died for us and we we just love you. We praise you. We lift you up and we want to honor you with the time we have left. Thank you for the wonderful promise. That when we die, we will be with you that day in paradise. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen.